Hello and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm your host, Annie Kriegbaum. Nick Axelrod-Welk is not with us today. Uh, In fact, we're not going to bring you any new beauty stories this week. We're bringing you a blast from the past, one of our most favorite episodes of all time, going all the way back to 2020, our interview with makeup artist Dick Page, who is the most charming, most delicious man I think I've ever spoken to in my entire life. He is just a complete legend and was so just amazing to talk to. And we thought, since we can't record a new up this week, let's bring you this this classic. So enjoy enjoy this rerun with Dick and stay tuned to the end of the episode where I will bring you both mine and Nick's products of the week. So Nick, you know how last week I was saying how lovely it was to see all the makeup artists and models and hairstylists, et cetera, on Instagram posting photos from set, like they were just starting to like do shoots together again? I do remember that. So one of those people was Dick Page, who is- The legendary Dick Page. Living legend. Like I think it's probably like him and Pat McGrath on that level. Of, right. of makeup artists, yeah. I mean, he, right. he came up and he'll, and we talk about this with him, but he came up with the London crew in the 80s and 90s. Kate Moss, Jurgen Teller. I mean, Jurgen Teller is not British, but um, was sort of shooting at that time. Melanie Corinne Ward, Day. Corinne Day. And then he came to New York and he was behind all the iconic Calvin Klein advertising campaigns. And you may remember him in front of the camera from a very controversial Marc Jacobs ad in which he was kissing his husband. And I say controversial in that it was not controversial at all, but Men's Vogue decided not to run the ad. And we talked to him about that too. So let's, uh, shall we get into the interview? Yes, I'm so excited. What's it been like going back to work? What's the new normal for you? There isn't one and there isn't going to be one. I only had one job, but it was over three days. And the kind of thing that might have ordinarily overlapped, we had one model per day and it was in Chinatown. It was only the second time I'd been to the city in four months. So it was, you know, showing up. They took your temperature as you arrived, which was hilarious because it was a five floor walk up. (laughs) So, So of course I'm hot. Just, I just walked up five flights of stairs with my kit. It was, it was, I don't know. It's, the, like I said, it was the first, it was just three days. I knew most of the people I was working with. I knew a couple of the stylists. There was different stylists each day. I knew two of the models, two out of three of the models. And Jimmy Paul was doing hair. So we're close. We've been friends for a long time. I was well-prepared, over-prepared. There's no, I don't think there's any such thing as over-prepared. Over-prepared actually would be not going to work anymore. That would be the most common sense approach to this. So everything was sanitized. Everything was super cleaned. I bought a little light sanitizing box to sanitize tools and work things in between times, a little UV light sanitizer, various kinds of masks, also face shields. I asked for the, asked the models. They didn't want me to wear a face shield. They were okay with that. So I just wore a mask. My, one of my sisters is a nurse and she said, I could bloody strangle these people complaining about having to wear a mask. It's like, you know, she tried, you know, working one of my shifts, a 12 hour shift, and getting through six masks a day, plus extra masks for surgery and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so I kept my lucky stars for that. So I changed my mask. I didn't wear gloves. I had gloves, two kinds, nitrile and vinyl. But also, 
washing, sanitizing, the usual disposable applicators. This is, and it's all, it was all just preparedness, really. And then, of course, the emotional negotiation of it, because it's not something you've ever had to, or I've ever had to be aware of. I mean, you're aware of you know, being clean at work, but not to this degree. I found myself holding my breath a couple of times. You know, is it worse if I breathe on this person or if I faint and collapse on them? Did you have to sign any waivers or agreements to to work? In, yes, in I the, signed a thing that said, you know, it's, it's fine if you kill me. I'm not going to come after you. My state will, you know, will not come after you if you kill me at work. No, so it's it's sort of like being a stuntman. No, no, no liability. It was a, it was a standard, you know. We were, it, it, the wording is one of those kind of terrifying wordings you read these things sometimes that I've only had to sign before, and I've been in some weird situations like potentially hazardous materials on set. There have been video productions or something, or things that involve pyrotechnics. You know, I, you think of Michael Jackson, the Pepsi commercials, poor lamb with his hair bursting into flames. So yeah, I signed a waiver, you know, like you do. It's all very abstract and doesn't, none of this seemed real yet. There's not necessarily standards or practices that are given to you. Like you're, you're creating them, correct? Yes. I mean, we're told, I mean, that you're told about the waiver, you're told about, you know, distancing, there will be pre-packed lunches, there will be no shared facilities, though, you know, and that I also have had a few different versions of 18, 20, 30 page documents that describe how in order to pass something to somebody, you put it down on a clean surface and they pick it up. You don't hand anything hand to hand. You do all these, all these things, which are borderline surgical procedures. So you read all that. I did the barbicide online certification thing, which is really, you know, have you seen this thing? This I've seen people posting photos. I've seen like hairstylists and makeup artists post photos of the certificate, but I don't know anything about going through the online Training. It's not very complicated. It's a multiple choice kind of online thing. It doesn't really prove anything or mean anything. I suppose it's potentially a salve to anyone who wants to employ you to know. That, I mean, it's not it's not as crass as this, but, you know, it's like you're working in close quarters with talent. Do you, A, spit in their mouth and wipe their face? B, you know, it, you know it's just, you no, know, it's obvious. It's really obvious things you might think about if you are a thinking person who has already, you know, conceded that we're in a, a unique state of peril and we have to pay attention. Mostly common sense, I think. Was it a commercial job or was it editorial work? Editorial. The thing, I mean, I talked to Jimmy about it a little while during the job. And, you know, we've known each other for a long time. So we can be sort of conversational. You can be kind of engaged with people. But the spontaneity is absent. Of course, you want to be around the people you know. I mean, all of us have worked together in these various capacities. Like, we're all going to pile into a Jeep and drive up a hillside to get this one picture. Or we're all going to do this. We'll do this and this and this. All these things that may or may not be possible. We know we're not traveling. I haven't been in a plane since the end of February. You know, you're not going to pile into the car and, and just take off across the city and see what you see. So, you know, boo-hoo-hoo, right? But the energy and spontaneity and engagement and action, the way that you find yourself on set and suddenly, well, maybe, yeah, maybe you will help hold this thing for the background or maybe you'll do this. You know, you're, I'm doing makeup, but I can hold this wind machine for someone while they're doing something else, or I can do that. But, you know, you're helping people with their bags. You're just, you know, you're connected to people in the way that you are ordinarily in any functioning society. So the constant awareness of an abstract, seemingly invisible danger is a weird way to live and work so far. But like I said, it's only been three days. I haven't had a chance to completely lose my... I mean, I've lost my mind in various other capacities. But in the professional capacity, I, I think I managed to keep it together. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that aspect of it, that like camaraderie and spontaneity. It feels like you kind of came up with these 90s artists, hairstylists, models that were that, that kind of created modern 
fashion by like having that kind of like energy in the shoots? I do come very much from that background because when I started, I didn't know it was a career really. It was something I thought I could do that might be fun. And I fell in with like-minded people, but it was very, you know, of course, shoestring, no budget. Not just the client saying they have no budget, but there was actually no budget because, you know, you were just doing stuff for the sake of it and hopefully it would run in a magazine. So someone had a car and you'd all pile in and go somewhere or you'd shoot in someone's bedroom or you'd shoot in the street. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an assistant. Why would I have one anyway? Because, you know, I can carry my own bags. I wasn't carrying very much product. I did makeup and hair a lot to begin with as well. And I didn't train to do either of these things. I just picked stuff up and copied things. And, you know, you can get away with murder if, for a still photograph. You know, just don't go around the back. I mean, the hair looks fine from there. This is, <laughs> this is her angle. Um, so, and starting in England, it was very DIY. You know, like I said, low budget. I didn't work for a proper, in parentheses, magazine until I got American jobs. So you decide you want to be a makeup artist. You put an ad in the newspaper? Like, how do you how do you do it? I moved to London in 87. I met Melanie Ward, who was I, was... I was hulking around going to agencies and showing them my book, which was like tear sheets of things, little things like local newspapers and stuff I'd done in Bristol, which is my hometown. And I met Melanie at what was then Zed, was a model agency, and Zed Photographic. She was... I think she'd just been signed. And I didn't get taken on by anyone directly. Melanie introduced me to a photographer she knew called Paula Bullwinkle, an American photographer who is now an artist and teaches art. And Paula introduced us both to Corinne Day. And then around the same time, in the end of 87, I met Jürgen Teller because I was going to see him to show him my book, what there was of it, like five pages of pictures. And I had a part-time job just so I could pay rent. So I was working in a photo lab at night, but like not, not like a, not a fashion photo lab, like the photo lab where you send your holiday pictures. And of course, this is pre, pre-computer, pre-internet, pre-cell phone, any of that stuff. So it was pay phones and slogging around and word of mouth and getting on the bus or the tube and going across town to meet people. So all very, very DIY, but all those things that you do when you're young and you're able to because you just do it, because you don't have anything to compare and contrast it to. Is it strange to see a lot of the photos that you worked on back in the day, like resurfacing on Instagram and all these like inspo pages? It's hilarious. It comes in waves. It's happened for a while. Even before Instagram, I would go to do a fashion show or something and there was a mood board backstage and someone would say, we're going for this kind of thing. And they'd point these out and they'd think, did that, did that, did that. Or people would say, you know, like Kate Moss. She, and there's, oh, of course, there's one of those. So good luck. There's only one Kate. Or fatally, people would say, we kind of think she should look like she did it herself. And, when, and you always want to interject with are we talking about someone who's really shit at doing makeup and hair is that what you mean someone who's naturally very very pretty like kate who's a bit shit at doing their makeup and hair but they still look gorgeous because they're kate you know explain yourself you know people people are very strange with stuff like that wait so is that a scoop that we have is kate shit at doing her makeup (laughs) well because she doesn't care why should she have to it's like she said she gets paid to go and wear other people's clothes and people do nice things to her and she gets fed you know it's brilliant so, <laughs> I mean, that sounds like the life. Right? She can do an eyeliner in a pinch. That's what I was joking with someone the other day. I said, look, the way the world has gone now, the girls who are going to be working are the ones who do care enough to have learned to be able to do their own makeup and hair, who can go like old school, like Grace Coddington talked about when she was modeling in the 60s. You know, you went to a job, you were able to do your own makeup and hair, you carried a certain amount of falls or wig pieces that you could add in, you carried a certain number of shoes, two pairs of court shoes, a flat shoe. You know, models did all their own stuff. Fashion, makeup and hair was a, a, quite a recent invention. There wasn't any really from the 50s onwards. There was a few like salon type hairdressers and, you know, visagist type makeup artists. But it wasn't a thing that happened. Models did it themselves. You mentioned the sort of advent of the hair, makeup, fashion teams 
was sort of a new thing. And it seems like in the eighties, this idea that you would have like a squad, like a group of photographers mm-hmm. and makeup artists and hairstylists who all work together and produce these images. And that were kind of like a, you know, a little community unto themselves, like yes. this kind of was becoming a bigger trend. What was the workplace like at that time? What was the professional atmosphere like? Uh, unprofessional. <laughs> because, you know, you're mostly, you're having a laugh. You're having fun. Honey Dijon, the, the DJ, one of her hashtags and the phrase she uses all the time is be the thing you wish to see. So there was something about that. Like you're putting things in a magazine page that you haven't seen before, that you identify with, that you recognize. Even if it's an idealized version of that thing, it's something that you can identify with. Like Melanie's not saying, well, I'm going to go as Linda Evangelista looking like Sophia Loren in Italian Vogue. Melanie's thinking, I saw this amazing woman in Brick Lane Market and she had so-and-so on and she was wearing this. You are creating a world that you identify with, that you can inform and you can have some, even if it's a fantasia, it's as much of a fantasia as Linda, as Sophia Loren, but it's something that you've created in your own image, your idea of what might be interesting for other people to look at and thinking that, rightly it turns out, that other people will identify with it, will be excited by it, to look at that and see something of themselves or... I don't know, a a more focused version of themselves or a slightly warped reflection. Rather than like a fantasy world that doesn't exist. Yeah, rather than something that's totally abstract because, you know, we'll get to that because drag did come back to eat us all anyway. So it's all drag, whatever you do, you know, whether it's like a T-shirt with holes in it or it's those shoes you can't walk in, it's all drag. When money became a part of the equation, did that change the creative process at all? Like that that sort of lightning in a bottle? It didn't really, because the first, my first time out of the gate with proper work in America was Calvin Klein. And um, we kind of came in on the coattails of Kate Moss, who, between Patrick de Machelier and Fabian Barron, were recommending Kate to Calvin. And we'd shot Kate so much, all of us, David and Corinne Day primarily, but then David Sims, very strong work with Kate, and she, he came in with her as well. And then I did, I did Barney's advertising with Corinne, and they, we were coming in because of what we did. So unlike what happens, it seems to happen so often in film or in music or in, you know, even in theatre, I don't know, maybe in fashion too, you know, people bring someone in for what they've done and then bend it or distort it or otherwise trying to force the square peg into the round hole and they end up like invalidating what they booked that person for in the first place. Whereas the people at Barney's and the people at Calvin were canny enough to think, well, we brought these people in this is what they've done, this is why we like it, and this is what's going to work for us. We're going to brand this, and it's going to make our brand look stronger and newer and younger. American Vogue was more resistant, I think. American Vogue was still a little bit like, I don't know, shouldn't they wash or something before they get into magazines? They were a little bit hesitant. I mean, that Vogue ran a grunge thing, the coincidental kind of Perry Mark Jacobs-type grunge thing, but it was, it was sanitized, I think. Stephen did an amazing job, but it was a little bit like... You know, it's, it's grungy, but it's expensive. Whereas some of the other people I've talked about bought it all in wholesale. So it still felt at least somewhat authentic. And I think, so Kate probably had a, had a word with someone and said, I like this one, I like that one. Oh, I did so-and-so with Dave. I did so-and-so with Melanie. And then maybe that's where we came along. But, you know, it was all, it felt like a kind of package deal. We didn't all get picked up and put on the same plane, but sometimes it feels like that. And do you still work with everyone that you started with to this day? 
The one I've worked with most is Jürgen. I don't work with him as much as I used to, but um, I, haven't with, I haven't worked with anyone for four months, but I don't work with him quite as much as I used to. But um, I haven't worked with David in years, for a very long time. And um, Corinne passed away, sadly. So I still see Kate. I mean, every now and Kate show, turns up like a bad penny. And, you know, we do something together. And Melanie, of course, I still see and work with. We don't have that many of the same clients. But um, most of us are still around. We are the dinosaurs, a wave of dinosaurs. Do you feel like a dinosaur? Sometimes, yeah. You know, the industry is predicated on on youth and, and newness of things. So naturally, I mean, that's the funny thing. When you're starting, you're aware of your luck or the situation you find yourself in. But you do, you're not really... I didn't really feel like we were doing anything that new because it just felt honest. I didn't feel like we went in there and smashed it up. In hindsight, people think that's what happened. Looking at the next generation of makeup artists like the Patrick Taz and the Hung Van Goghs of the world um, mm-hmm. who you know came to fame through celebrity makeup, was that like the advent of the celebrity makeup artist, the person who would become famous for doing the makeup of someone else versus you know, creating campaign images. How did that crop up and what did you ever think about pivoting? <laughs> it's really not my department. I'm not very, I mean, the, the original, of course, was Kevin O'Quan. And, you know, Kevin really created, there, there's always been people who were, like Sandy Linto was earlier, worked with Diana Ross a lot, and um, amazing work with some of these performers and various other people who've worked in this capacity. But Kevin was the one who really made it his métier of working with these different actresses and, re- you know, like, super controlling of the image and the creation of the way that people can, could look. And that was, he really made that. He predates, of course, these, these kids by a long way with it, you know, and did incredible work. But, um, and so I'm really not that interested in the celebrity thing. I can't, you know, I mean, I've, it's happened, of course, and it's happened in the capacity of, you know, working with magazines and so, occasionally with advertising stuff. But it's, it's not my strong suit. I know there's always someone who can make this one look better than I can. Have you ever thought about doing your own line? Of course. Yeah, I've thought about that. I mean, and I've con- kind of gone towards it and then away from it and towards it. And I had a few kind of really hilariously fruitless meetings with people. And a couple of times, unfortunately, I'd had ideas of sort of things I wanted to do. And then when it got to doing the backing, it was, it, this was a few years ago already. People were very much about the celebrity of that and the the signature model and this kind of thing, or we could get an actress or we could do it. I just I'm just, it's not that interesting to me. I just don't find that, you know, and I, I know the kind of thing I'd like to do. And I know, I don't know that it's not saleable, but I kind of wonder who my market is, if it's very, if it's very big at all. So I don't know. I mean, there was something I was thinking about and God knows what would happen with that now, even trying to do that now. But the market is certainly saturated. It has been for some time. There probably is or is room for another point of view, but I'm not sure it's a, a big saleable thing. And also, I sound like a you know flaming hypocrite because I have also been a champion of you can get everything in the drugstore. You know, you can get everything for twenty bucks. You don't have to spend a fortune on makeup, which I still do truly believe. I think it's better now than ever. Really. What are some of your favorite under twenty dollars makeup products? Oh God, um, I mean, I love I love what Black Opal does with their colors. I love still some of Wet and Wild. All the Maybellines and Revlons and those people, they've really picked it up. They've done some really good... It's the thing is, I still think my way of thinking about makeup is as an editor. I'm not sure yet there's one brand covers everything. Mac does it very well, but it's not cheap. I mean, it's not insane, but it's not cheap. But um, you can get amazing stuff from pretty much everyone. And I don't do I go makeup shopping that often, but occasionally, like the you know, time before last when I was in London, when I looked at Rimmel and I looked at some of those other cheap, cheaper brands, I just thought they had some great stuff. 
It was really fun. Do you ever test makeup looks on yourself? Oh, God, can you imagine? <laughs> like, and I couldn't see for laughing. Um, no, no, I don't. I, I, mean, I, t- I always, I'm always testing colorways and playing. If I get new products we I haven't tried before on a, you know, on a civilian or, or victim of other sort, I'll just play around with it t- to familiarize myself with the texture. But I've, I haven't, you know, worn makeup like properly myself for. I put makeup on for a party last year for some thing, but not like. And it's terrifying, really. <laughs> Why is it terrifying? Because, <laughs> it's like painting an old boat. You know, it's just like, they put me up on blocks and paint me in the front yard. It's, uh, yeah, it's not a good look. You know, I, I cast that die quite early on. I'm not, I'm not interested in the surgery. I'm not interested in all that work. I can think of way better things to spend my money on. I'm quite happy to get old and haggy and it just, it can all go hang. Is yeah. the first and only time that you were on in front of the camera in those 2006 Marc Jacobs ads where you and your husband were... Uh, <laughs> yeah, for the hinting. men's campaign, yeah. And that was the first and only time? Yeah. I remember being in New York at that time and, you know, cover. I was at Women's Wear Daily and covering the controversy, which I think was... Basically, that Men's Vogue declined to run the ads. Hilarious. They felt, because they felt homoerotic, which now if you look at the ads and it's you and your husband, you know, sitting on a bearskin rug kissing, are tame by, the, by today's standards. Super tame. That was always hilarious about it. And what I loved, I mean, it was really funny because Jürgen called me and said, like, are you going to believe what's happening? This is really ridiculous. And we, we all thought it was hilarious and stupid and funny. But um, Robert Duffy called up Men's Vogue and, you know, tore them a new one. And just said, like, you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, really, Mary? You know that you're like, Men's Vogue isn't running this because, what, you're too chicken shit to show two men together? In I mean, the funny thing about it was, at the same time, you had Dolce Gabbana ads with the guys in the, you know, the branded underwear standing around, interestingly, in a locker room. And they were football players or whatever. They were from like some Italian football team or something. And we're like, but it, it's this sort of neutered, nothingy idea. And then you have two regular people, one of whom doesn't actually fit those clothes, you know, hanging out in these ads. It was very funny. It was, it was, it was a bit sad, really. These was it all. homophobia, do you think? It was stupidity. I mean, honestly, because my thought at the time was, well, really, men's vogue. Like, you're afraid you're going to put off all your NASCAR readers? <laughs> like, like, well, it feels like the the problem with Men's Vogue always was that it it was born with an identity crisis where it was trying to be this like platonic ideal of a straight you know the husband to the woman who reads Vogue yes and that person doesn't want to read Men's Vogue it was the whole thing was a, a joke they they tri- well, just what you're saying they tripped over themselves trying to be straight it's like. This one, you know, collects muscle cars and this one, like, you know, races and this one has a yacht and he's like, oh, look, golf and lovely watch. It's like, oh, we get it. You don't suck cock. It's fine. It's still fashion. No one cares. You know, it just, it was very, very odd. So I think, I mean, the funny thing was when Robert spoke to them about it, the picture they wouldn't run, the Men's Vogue, the short-lived Men's Vogue, wasn't even one of the kissing ones. I think we were, like, lying on the front... Actually, the house I'm in right now. We, we have a plaque on the wall now, of course. Like, that's the site of the Mark Jacobs men's campaign. We were, like, lying on the front... Gu- in the garden. We weren't hugging or kissing or anything. We were just there. Like, a couple of lumps in clothes that we wouldn't buy. I think I remember also at the time that 
you know, you and your husband were described in media as being bear-like or sort of not the classic Fire Island, you know, version of a gay man. And, and you guys were, you know, looked more burly, had more, more hair suit. Was there something that was kind of like breaking the stereotype of the gay man in fashion or, or like the gay man cookie cutter well it would have been fun if that had been the case i I mean i I would have found that much more interesting if they were bothered by that i think it was just the fact of it it was just like there's some homos actual homos you know (laughs) captured on film in their natural habitat and when Jürgen shot me and james we shot in the in our apartment in the city that was being renovated at the time and then Jürgen and tung his then assistant came out and stayed over here the night and we just cooked outside and we hung out and we took some pictures and it was just, you know, kind of normal. We just had a bag of clothes. Now, of course, there'd be like a head of marketing, a head of social media, there'd be um, videographer, there'd be all sorts of different people the, that'd be shoots. It would never be as intimate. No, that now that then, like I did a thing for a jeans company, not last year, late the year before. And these crews have gotten progressively bigger and bigger and bigger. And this was insane. We were shooting print and they were also shooting a film commercial. There was a separate social media room where they were doing Snapchat and Instagram. I don't know if TikTok was a thing yet, probably not. They had also an independent video booth where the models would talk to camera and just record their own thing. Then there was a stills. Then there was a marketing stills, which was separate with the same talent. And it was just people being shunted from room to room to room. A total machine, a factory. And as you said, no intimacy, no no sense of uh, a community or like even a collective people with, with this one eye on something because people are too afraid of what the art buyer might say, the art director might say. So a lot of this has to do with digital, the advertising digital, even before all the Instagram and social media because the client got very, very used to the idea that at the end of the day, they could see the layout with the tags, with the product, with the line, how it's going to be. We're going to crop here. It's going to be this. Here's the vertical format. Here's the horizontal format. Here's the crop for this. This is the Asia one. This is the one we've done for the Middle East where she's covered up to the neck. Blah, blah, blah. I was also joking, half joking, that uh, one thing about this current crisis with the pandemic is it may force people to cut this all back. People will be working without assistance. You can't have everybody there. You can't have all the clients and all the art directors and all those extra people. How are we distancing when there's a, a baseline team of 35 people? It's ridiculous. It can't be done. But maybe it does revert back to that idea of like having a little pod of a stylist, a hair uh, stylist and a makeup artist. And you guys kind of do your thing with your model or your celebrity and then deliver it to the client. That would be amazing if it even happens. I'm just happy to work. Whatever permutation, hang me from a high air balloon. I'll do the work and get out of the way. One of the things I was just thinking about as you were talking is you've obviously had this long and super successful career. There's been a reckoning in entertainment in in movies and in tv shows where a lot of creators have had to apologize for you know scenes that are in movies or you know like they took gone with the wind off of hbo max Mm -hmm. Um, this idea that images or scenes or scenarios that at the time didn't you know raise an eyebrow in terms of racial insensitivity are now being sort of seen in the the context of 2020. And there's sort of a reckoning where people are are having to apologize. Are there any images or shoots that you've been a part of that, you know, you regret in that sense? Because fashion has been known to push buttons and been known to take risks. And with that comes a certain amount of, you know, insensitivity. That's a good question. Um, Well, of course, you know, when I started 
not when I started out. I've been working for a few years from the late 80s onwards. But, you know, I was somewhat embroiled in the whole idea of heroin chic, this kind of the attack that, that all these girls are, you know, they have anorexia, they're not eating, they're all on drugs, they're all this and that and the other. And, you know, I'd, I've been accused of... One of my Calvin shows, actually, I got some horrible press for one of the early Calvin shows that I'd made the girls look like strung-out junkies, which, you know, was, I just th- thought was sloppy journalism at the time. I didn't set out to make anyone look ill, and I, I thought the girls looked really beautiful for the most part. In print, I don't think I've done anything that I thought was... I mean, I've done things I thought were, yeah, you know, questionable taste, which is not the same as, you know, prurient or offensive. But then there's also a weird thing about, you know, something as, as ordinary as people being naked, naked versus nude or whatever, that that's seen, uh, you know, is that exploitative? That we have these, I have these naked pictures of girls in my book. Well, these, these are people with no clothes on. It happens a lot. We're all naked. So it's also a lot to do with, um, with the eye of the beholder. It's what is deemed acceptable at any one time and is no longer. Like if you look at, a lot of the back catalogue of Chris von Langenheim or Helmut Newton, there's stuff there that like might raise an eyebrow, that gets gets a pass for art, whatever, you know. It's funny because it does until it doesn't, right? Like, yeah. you know, I grew up, and I, I was born in 83, and I grew up with Woody Allen movies being totally acceptable uh-huh. and through the 90s where we were all into Woody Allen movies and he, the Dylan Farrow controversy had come out, you mm-hmm. know, or the Dylan Farrow accusations, I should say, came out. And he married his stepdaughter. That uh-huh. was something that had happened. But we hadn't. Re- there hadn't really been a, a a sort of like actual moment, a cancellation, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, until until very recently. So it's funny that it can take that long for the art to you know catch up to the artist. Well, that's the or same. The, the artist to catch up to the art. But the same thing as Roman Polanski. People are talking about Polanski for so long. Like you know, how was everyone in Hollywood still wanted to work with Polanski, even though he couldn't? You know, he couldn't come back to America because he'd be clapped in irons as soon as he stepped out of the airport. The Woody Allen thing for years. I, I mean, I'd loved the films. I'd loved some of the you know, being an English person, seeing those things like the romance of America, particularly of New York. But I remember seeing you know, watching Manhattan and thinking. This is fucked up. This girl is a child. Then they're, they're all kind of joking around the Mariel Hemingway character. What the hell? How is this? How is this just like ordinary? No one seems to find this weird, what's going on here. But there you are. It's funny, too, that on set, like in the fashion editorial or, or campaign set scenario, the hair and makeup team, the hair and makeup leads are the ones who are spending the most time with the model. And in some ways, I would say are kind of like the protectors of the model, like the ones who see the model before she has any makeup on, who are asking her about her day, her morning, you know, getting very intimate uh, with her face and with her features. And did you feel sort of protective over the models you worked with? Because, you know, these sets were not incredibly professional at the time. And you you were kind of an ally uh, because you were sort of working so closely with them. It, so this wasn't a thing in the first when I first started because it was all it was, it was very small. So it was, it was it was me and Corin and Melanie, maybe Drew Jarrett was doing the hair or someone. It was very or James Brown was doing the hair, and it was small. It was a, only a few of us. So it wasn't like a lot of outside stuff going on. When I first noticed it being dodgy was at fashion shows because I didn't do proper fashion shows till I came to the US, and so there was a lot of license of photographers backstage who had free reign. They were in any part of the backstage area where girls were changing. 
And these are young women, you know, these, these are mid to late teenagers, a lot of these girls. And that was sketchy. And that was when we all, it all kind of came into play. That was when it was collective, like makeup and hair and makeup and hair assistants and other models watching out for each other for the girls because these photographers were all in there. And we don't need to be, you don't need to be reminded because you've heard it, I'm sure, of course, that, you know, himself, our, you know, dear leader, used to show up backstage at fashion shows. And so did a bunch of other New York bigwigs. They would just like stroll in and wander around and they were guests of whoever the hell was running the show. So it was very scary, sketchy. But um, yeah, makeup and hair are, well, makeup and hair and styling kind of a collective, I think. When you saw anything that raised your antenna backstage, like, did you, were there instances in which you like said something, did something? Yeah, you'd say collectively, let's clear these people out. You can get quite mouthy and I'm, you know, I'm a big guy. If I got mouthy and rallied a few people around. You could usually find people who work venue security or something to help. But, you know, it's just photographers shouldn't be sneaking through the clothes racks to get pictures of half-naked girls. That's, that's 101. That's pretty simple. So, yeah, I, I, I've stepped in. I had stepped in. It didn't usually escalate. I, ne- I never got into any fights about it. When you had talked earlier about the heroin chic thing being controversial, but, you know, you being a part of that, obviously that's not the intention that you were going for. And I mean, I, I think I was too young to be aware of like trends in that way. When heroin chic was the look, that term I think was coined obviously after people were enjoying all the like beautiful images or whatever. But I'm just thinking like, now that you're saying this, it's today, I think what would be considered maybe like the glossy, like dewy skin and maybe some smudgy eye makeup or whatever is like seen as very fresh and new, but it's kind of, that's a lot of what heroin chic was back in the day. It was like dewy skin and, you know, like not a lot of this perfect, like you said earlier, sanitized, perfectly powdered, whatever. So it's like kind of funny how that's been turned on its head a little bit. You get used to the idea. I mean, or, yeah, things become part of the, you know, the, the zeitgeist becomes the main, mainstream. It's the moment. But um, I remember watching um, the Terrence Malick film, Badlands, and, you know, the, the Sissy Spacek character, you know, she's this sort of runty you know, poor white girl, and you've never seen anyone more beautiful in your life. I mean, she's extraordinary looking. But in this way that reads poor, because it's like, it's stringy hair and it's freckly and, you know, sallow and slightly slightly vacant looking. But, you know, like, well, if that's ugly, I'll take it. So it's, you know, it's the eye of the beholder. It's, it's perception and expression of the way someone looks. You can read things in lots of different ways. And if it doesn't fall in line with what people have been used to, and of course, right, right up until Kate showed up and Kate and Rosemary Ferguson and Emma Balfour and the cohorts, those other girls who kind of like were part of that early world in the 90s, you've been used to this kind of Amazonian representation of how models looked. I was very surprised when I first met Linda and Christy in real life that they weren't, you know, as tall as I was. I expected these giantesses to come in the room. And they were just, oh, look, just people. Just pretty regular people. Not regular. But because of the way they were, like, shot and styled, they looked... Yes, they were always, like, a bunch of headpieces and three pairs of false eyelashes and high glamour. And it's, like, this iconic iconic idea of beauty. And, um, like I said before, it's all drag to varying degree and to varying effect and intent. Looking back on it, we can try and make sense of how it landed at the time, you know, it's difficult, particularly if you're coming coming along with that, because I wasn't, I hadn't experienced the other side of what was the kind of modern American fashion at the time. So I only knew what I knew and kind of wasn't as aware of the import of what I was coming into. Well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we are curious because you've become such like a food icon as well on your Instagram. What are you having for dinner tonight? 
that's uh, I don't know if it's another wave of leftovers or what's going on. I'm making I'm in the middle of making some kimchi, so some of that will happen. Some of that will go into food that's fresh tonight because you always taste a little bit when it's fresh made. And there are lettuces that need to come out of the ground, so those are those are going to come up tonight. I've got a little vegetable garden going in the back, vegetable and herb garden. Um, I'm not sure. We had a Moroccan tagine last night, and there's a bit of that left. It might just it might just be kind of a hodgepodge of leftovers, a buffet, if you like. Uh, even your leftovers look like something that I would make on like <laughs> my best day. <laughs> We're trying to. I really hate the. Okay, this is if we're talking about like you know trends and stuff. I mean. I got into it, I did an interview with someone the other day and they were insistent the whole time talking about the importance of a plant-based diet. I'm like, what a fucking brontosaurus plant-based diet. Like, we eat lots of vegetables and stuff, but it's like a plant-based diet. But we do eat a lot of plants. I've relaxed a little bit, but I have loaded the chest freezer downstairs. So even if, you know, if the dome came down and covered the town, we'd be all right for six months. Six months? Yeah, that's a big freezer. Yeah, it's a chest freezer downstairs. And I, plus, I've got all my pickles and the preserves and things and bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah, we'll do all right. That's so chic. <laughs> you don't even mean to be, but you just are. <laughs> yes, survival is the new chic. Hi, everyone. I'm back. And I have the products of the week. Okay, next product of the week is actually in response to one of our patrons. Ooh, her name is Paola. She asked, Nick, please let me know where I can find amazing bed pillows, like sleeping in a five-star hotel. And Nick obliged. He recommends pillows from Down and Feather Company. Downandfeathercompany.com is the website. And from what I understand from Nick, these are like custom-made pillows. They are not cheap. They're like $500, Jesus Christ. But they use Goose Down um Hungarian white goose down in fact Egyptian long staple cotton you know you know the good cotton's Egyptian and Nick also wanted me to let you guys know they have a really great return policy where you can sleep on the pillow for a week if you find you hate it you can send it back they'll make you a new pillow and everybody's happy in the end so check it out downandfeathercompany.com and you'll have a beautiful beautiful night's sleep my product of the week is a, a very old school classic. This product's been around for decades. And in fact, I think this might have been my first ever skincare purchase when I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade. It is the Erno Laszlo soap bar, facial cleansing bar. And I was reminded of it because I'm staying at my mom's house right now and it she's she's actually using the Felatil cleansing bar. I used the green version before, but this is the more moisturizing version. And let me tell you, the foam, the creaminess of the foam that it produces is unlike any creamy facial cleanser you will ever use. And I know a lot of people think that bar soap is drying. This is this is gonna blow your fucking mind. Felatil cleansing bar. It's the gold color. Um, it comes in the custom Erno Laszlo case. It has safflower seed oil. It has macadamia esters, whatever the fuck those are. And it really does leave your skin feeling so just comforted and moisturized after using it. And you know I love a bar soap um, that doesn't have a ton of plastic. And I haven't done my research, but I'm hoping that you can buy refills without the plastic case too, because otherwise that would kind of defeat the purpose of saving plastic. It looks like you can. It looks like you can. 
We're going to go with it. You can. Okay. It's $44. Try it. You'll thank me later. And that's that. That's it for us this week. I think that you guys should definitely check out our Patreon, Eyewitness Beauty. Uh, I uploaded a eyeliner tutorial. Our videos are exclusive to Prestige Beauty subscribers. It's the $25 a month tier. And this eyeliner video I made is my like classic black cat eye. I get people asking about it all the time. Um, so I finally, finally made a video for it. And I tried to go pretty deep into the technique and definitely I, I linked and I talked about all the products I recommend and hopefully it's not just your run-of-the-mill tutorial hopefully you'll learn some things that you wouldn't have thought about before so check that out and that's it we'll be back next week with a brand new episode uh Wes Haas produced this episode for us and I don't have any other credits <laughs> other than i hope you guys have a beautiful weekend a beautiful week ahead and nick and i will be back to your regularly scheduled programming next week all right bye-bye